Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Exodus, the 24th chapter, verses 12 to 18. Let's listen together for a word from God. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up the mountain, went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whomever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called, out, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up onto the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading comes to us in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 24 to chapter 17, verse 8. Let's listen again for a word from God. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? And what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took him, Peter, took with him Peter and James and his brother John, and led them up a high mountain. By themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white suddenly there appeared with them moses and elijah talking with him and peter said to jesus lord it is good for us to be here if you wish i will make three dwellings here one for you one for moses and one for elijah and while he was still speaking, a suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome with fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself. The word of the Lord.
Please pray with me. Oh God, it is good for us to be here virtually and in person this morning, and we pray that we are able, by the gift of your love and your spirit and your grace, to listen to your word with body, mind, and soul. And may the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, as many of you know, my hero, uh, Presbyterian past, pastor and writer, uh, Frederick Meekner, who passed away just uh, very recently, um, sort of is a thread throughout my work and my thoughts and my reading. And um, Beekner one time told the story of a moment in his life when God broke through in an unusual way. He wrote, I remember sitting parked by the roadside once, terribly depressed and afraid, this time about my daughter's illness and what was going on in our family. And as Beekner was sitting there thinking about his daughter's illness, feeling terrible, he noticed a car that seemed to come out of nowhere. His message from God, the word he most needed to see at that moment, was found on that other car's license plate. The license plate, Beekner said, bore on it the one word out of all the words in the dictionary that I needed most exactly at that moment. The word was trust. Sitting in his car alongside the highway, God's message was revealed on the license plate of a passing car. It's certainly difficult to describe that kind of experience to anybody who wasn't there, but that's what happened to Beekner. And he says, was the experience something to laugh off as a kind of joke that life plays on us once in a while, or was it a word from God? I'm willing to believe that maybe it was something of both. But for me, it was an epiphany. The owner of the car turned out to be a trust officer at a local bank. And after reading about that incident in one of Beekner's writings, the trust officer, a few years later, actually contacted Fred Beekner and paid a personal visit to him one afternoon, and he presented Beekner with the actual license plate, which bore the word which he so desperately needed to hear that day, trust. So Beekner put the license plate up on the, his bookshelf, very proud uh, place of honor in a pastor's office. Trust. New Hampshire. It's rusty around the edges and it's a little battered, he wrote, but it's as holy a relic as I have ever seen. Yesterday was my dad's 91st birthday, so dad, God bless you. Um, and I was, I was, so I, you know, when your father has a birthday like that, uh, you start to think about how much, how much water is under the bridge in your own life. Uh, but I, I remembered this week as I was preparing for this morning uh, how my dad used to drive me to school around fifth or sixth grade in our Dodge pickup truck. And uh, I have very vivid memories of this because I could always smell, he always had a thermos of coffee and it had that coffee smell. I didn't drink coffee then. I loved how it smelled, not how it tasted back then. Um, I remember, you know, even if it was really cold, the heater, the, the truck would keep us warm. I, of course, was exhausted, didn't want to go to school sometimes. 
But on the radio, in that little section of our lives, this is in Florida uh, at that point in my life, uh, on the way to school, we would always listen to Paul Harvey. Anybody know who Paul Harvey is? Yeah, you have to be of a certain age, right? Uh, Paul Harvey was a very famous radio broadcaster. Bram, listen up. You probably never heard of Paul Harvey. Uh, but he, at one time, uh, reached 24 million people every week. He was, everybody pretty much listened to the news and commentary, which Paul Harvey would do. And he had a kind of a unique and engaging way of telling the news, which always ended with what I, the line I loved, which was, and now you know the rest of the story. Like the story about the two U.S. Navy AD-1 Sky Raider airplanes who left the Naval Air Station in Seattle on September 30th, 1951, for a routine flight to Mather Field in Sacramento. And it just so happened that on one of those two planes was a young U.S. Army private who had just, as my dad would say, hot space aid, space available. Military guys can, and women can uh, jump on a plane and, and travel everywhere they want if there's a space available, as long as they're wearing their uh, uniform. At least it used to be like that. That was a perk of the military. Near the end of this flight, as they got into California, uh, the pilot of one of the planes lost touch with his partner, and low on fuel, he had to ditch the plane off the coast of Northern California. He and this passenger, this sort of unlucky private who just had, was along for the ride, uh, survived the impact, but had to swim back to shore in the Northern California coastal surf. Uh, they had two rafts initially, which they had lashed together, but those rafts eventually were broken up by the rough seas, and they were separated, and both of them made it, but they barely made it. This young airman, or this young private, who was army private, who was just along for the ride that day, kept getting swept back out to sea by the current, almost got pulled, over by, pulled under by the undertow at one point, but finally he made it out to shore, he crawled out of the water, exhausted, and he staggered into a radio station at Point Reyes, which is a beautiful place just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. The water, I guarantee you, is cold and dangerous there. Uh, I've been there, and in a state of shock still, this young army guy uh, incoherently tried to tell what had happened to him about the plane running out of fuel and the dramatic landing and the crash and barely making it. And the name of that young man was Clint Eastwood. And now you know the rest of the story. That's how he did it. He had a better way of saying it than, than I do. And now you know the rest of the story. That's kind of how he did it. Um, do you like to know the rest of the story before the story ends? Uh, sometimes Sarah and I, when we're watching or deciding what to watch or to binge watch on television, we'll have a conversation. Um, Sarah you know, doesn't like to see things she's already seen when she knows what's already, what's going to happen. And uh, she'll say, I've, I don't want to watch that. I've seen it. I know what happens in the end. And I respond with something like, well, I'm a film connoisseur. And I'm more interested in how things are made, the lighting, the casting, the shot, the screenwriting. That's not really true. I just say that. Uh, I do love watching movies I've seen over and over again, way more than Sarah does. Uh, but there is nothing like the first time you see a film or read a book where you don't know the ending or where there's a surprise twist at the end. 
you remember The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis, who I understand is uh, very ill with uh, uh, dementia, we just, just diagnosed. Um, remember The Usual Suspects, Kaiser Sose, or Citizen Kane, Rosebud, or uh, anybody want to go to and retire in Zawataneho? What's that from? Shawshank Redemption, right? Yep. Yeah, so there's, there's these surprises at the end. There's, is he going to make it out of prison, the, the escape? Uh, in our Bible story today, we have, a, as I talked about with the children, a similar kind of re revealing of the ending, right here at the beginning, really, of Jesus' earthly ministry in the Galilee region of what is now Israel. He takes Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, and they didn't know it, but Jesus was going to show them the end of the story, right there. Uh, it's a story that God had been telling since the moment of creation, the story of the people of Israel and how God loved them, set them apart, put up with their complaining, their imperfections, made them a light unto the nations, bringing this salvific relationship with the divine, with our God, not only to the rest of the Jewish people, but we believe to the ends of the earth. Let's put that moment in context a little bit this morning. Just before this, as Graham read, Jesus has announced that he's got to suffer and die for all this to happen. And it sounded crazy, and Peter responded like you and I would. No, 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 no. I'm not, I don't want to hitch my wagon to a savior who's going to lose. I want a winner, right? And Jesus rebuked his best friend, Peter, and said, get behind me, Satan. You will have your mind and your thoughts on human things, not divine things. That's pretty harsh, actually. Jesus was kind of mean there. Not how you think we think of him. But this was really important, an important moment. And just after that, that moment where this misunderstanding between Jesus' followers, that's us in this story, and him uh, happens, where he says, no, I must suffer, I must die. This journey I'm on is going to end at the cross. Just after that, Jesus takes his closest three disciples up to the top of that mountain. And there Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white. Moses and Elijah, the giver of the law, the Torah, the Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. Um, and Elijah, the greatest prophet in Israel's history, are there the voice of God affirms exactly the exact same words that appeared in Jesus' baptism, right? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. There's an old joke about a well-known scientist who announced he was trying to cross a parakeet with a panther. A paranther. A pantherkeet. Good heavens, asked a newspaper reporter. You know, this is an old story. Uh, what do you expect to end up with if you're, you're going to cross a parakeet with a panther? And the scientist admitted, well, I can't rightly say, but if it starts talking, people better listen. And those of us who know who Paul Harvey uh, was would also know about E.F. Hutton, right? When E.F. Hutton talks, what happens? People listen, exactly. Exactly. Insurance, right? Is that right? 
think it was insurance, I'm not sure. Oh, stocks, thank you. Apparently I wasn't listening. Yeah. <laughs> the Transfiguration tells us the end of the story because it shows us this revelation of um, the fulfillment of God's promise to each and every one of us from the beginning of time. The promise that we are loved so much that reconciliation with God, with others, and with ourselves is possible. It's not beyond our reach. There is no barrier that can keep us from God. Not because of who we are, how, much our, how, how deep or strong our faith is, how well we perform, how much trouble we do not cause. It doesn't matter because we're going to cause trouble at times. We're not always going to live up to our greatest aspirations. And fortunately, this promise guarantees us that it doesn't matter. What matters is God's love for you and for me and for this world. The disciples saw Jesus on that mountain with Moses and Elijah, and nobody can keep any commandments perfectly in their lives. It's just very difficult. But that separation from God, the giver of life, would mean that alone we're not going to make it ultimately, no matter how much we fool ourselves. But that's where Elijah comes in. If Moses reminds us that the, the law, the Bible's call for us as human beings is just too hard to fulfill. It's impossible for anyone to be that perfect or that good, and that's not what religion's all about anyway. Uh, then Elijah the prophet, one of Israel's greatest leaders, um, turns people back to God and continually reminds them that if you simply turn back, God will always meet you, more than halfway if necessary. Theologian N.T. Wright wrote that the most thought-provoking statement about Jesus he ever heard was this. What would it look like if you took the prophet's message of turning back to God, healing our relationship with God, reconciling with God, and turned that message, those words, that promise, into a human being? What would that human being be like, look like, act like? And then N.T. Wright wrote, now ask yourself, what would that prophecy look like if it were to clothe itself in flesh and blood? Might it not look like a young person going around Galilee, making all things new by loving the unlovable, by healing the unhealable, by welcoming the outcasts? This story tells us that the end of the story is that Jesus will fulfill everything necessary to reconcile the world, and that includes us with God. Transfiguration gives us a sneak peek, a preview, a spoiler alert, if you will, that we can heal our separation from God not by our own good behavior, our own efforts, our own good works. We can heal our separation and alienation from ourselves and from others, not by living a good life and not hurting anybody, but by Jesus, God's very self, reconciling us God, sacrificing himself, putting himself out there, being ridiculed, being beaten, being abandoned, which probably may be worse even than death was what he had to go through. So the first step in, of the journey of Lent is to listen to him. Listen with your heart in worship, in prayer, ask questions, present doubts, 
Challenge him and the word that presents him. Find the contradictions. Dig into them. Think, pray, listen with mind and heart. There's a story of a brilliant magician who was performing on an ocean liner, and every time he did a trick, the captain's parrot, not a parakeet, the parrot would yell, it's a trick, that magician's a phony, that's not magic. Every evening during the show, the captain's parrot would yell, it's a trick, I can see what he's doing. Then during a storm, the ship sank while the magician was performing. The parrot and the magician ended up on the same lifeboat, if you can believe it. For several days, they just glared at each other, neither saying a word. Finally, the parrot said, okay, I give up. What'd you do with the ship? In life, there are moments that occur that are incomprehensible, inexplicable. The birth of one's own child is one of those moments. The loss of a loved one is one of those moments. September 11th was one of those moments. Being in a restaurant in, uh, I think it was Levingston, East Hanover, uh, celebrating your 91-year-old father's birthday when they bring out the surprise cake with candle and sing, that was one of those moments. We talk about in this church a lot, especially with the staff, what we call PCUM moments, which are just so so meaningful. They arrive, these moments, on the mountaintops and in the valleys. We're never ready for them. We can't create them. They arrive unannounced, changing us, always transfiguring us, you might say, in irreversible ways if we just let them. But there's one thing they all have in common, these transfiguration moments. They demand that we be silent and listen and be in awe. These moments have something to say to us, to teach us. Your moments of your lives, the moments that we have together in the life of this church. You know, in order to become a minister in most denominations, a ministerial candidate has to be examined and tested theologically, biblically, in terms of what we call polity and a couple of other ways. Uh, uh, That's how I met Graham, in fact. I was teaching a class that Graham was acing. It must have been pretty easy, I guess. I don't know. Um, but the church does have an obligation, a responsibility to know if a person is prepared, is theologically sound, even if we don't always agree on stuff as pastors, at least in our denomination, which I think is great, you do need to be prepared. You do need to be, in some sense, a scholar of the Bible and of the world. Um, so theological questions are asked of our candidates for ministry, and I heard recently about a veteran minister who always asked the same theological question of every candidate for ministry, and that is how it happens, right? The the old, (laughs) I guess I'm becoming that person, the old dude stands up and goes, I've got a question, everybody goes, rolls their eyes, we know your question, it's the same question you ask at every meeting. Um, And this time, this this person asked the candidate, the the candidates the questions uh, that go like this. He said, "Uh, ma'am, young ma'am, young lady, I want you to look out the window and uh, tell me what you see out there. And the candidate, she looked out the window and kind of haltingly said, I see one person out there. And the older pastor said, do you know that person personally? Nope. Good. Now my question is this. Will you please describe that person theologically? 
And in three decades of experience of asking that question, the seasoned minister had found that candidates for ministry tend to give one of two answers. Some will say something like, well, that person, like the rest of us, is a sinner who needs redemption in Christ. Whether they know it or not, Okay, or they'll say, that person is a child of God, loved and upheld by the grace of God, whether they know it or not. And I suppose the seasoned minister would say that technically both of these answers are theologically correct, but it is my experience that the second answer is given by those who are going to make better pastors. What's the end of your story? Who were the people in your lives already who knew how things were going to work out when you didn't, who believed in you, who, who trusted in your future even when you were terrified it wasn't going to work out? Isn't it annoying when friends and loved ones say, you're going to be fine? No, I'm not. I know you're going to be fine because I know you. I don't want to hear that, you know. Of course, we do the same for them. There are scary times ahead in Lent. There are scary times ahead in reality. Um, hard times are in front of us. Jesus had hard times ahead. Um, and I'd love to know how it all turns out, wouldn't you? Will my daughter master the stick shift? I'd like to know. What about climate change? What's, are we gonna able to get that reined in at all? Bitcoin, I think we know the answer there. Will my football team ever actually do anything in the playoffs again? Will people still be eating kale in 10 years? <laughs> Will I get through the patch that I'm in right now, the tough patch, the sadness I'm feeling, the stretch of financial and medical health problems I'm facing, my credit card bills, this tension I'm having with a person at work or a person at home? Will my commitment, your commitment, our commitment help this church recover its vision for being a vibrant, healthy ministry, not only to ourselves, but to our community Jesus gives us the answer to the question. We will not be alone. It's always shiny and awesome up on the top of the hills, but today the end of the story is he's also with us down in the valleys as well, surprising us, reassuring us, letting us know that the cross is coming and I need you to go there with me, but you're not going to be going alone. And... I know you don't know how it's going to happen, but in the end, there this will be this glorious day of complete harmony and love, and we will always be together. Amen.